Well, welcome to the stage, these guys, Matthew and Seth. Hey, guys. So uh, many of you know this, uh, some of you don't, but um, the reason we are all three up here today is because we're doing a thing that we like to do this first Sunday of the year called Ask Anything. Uh, I don't know that we'll do it forever, but we're going to keep doing it for now. So we're doing it today, at least. Uh, I think we'll keep it going, but, um, you know, kind of like anything, we sort of play it by ear. So to kind of officially introduce everybody, uh, my name's Luke Simmons. Um, I'm, my title here is I'm the lead pastor. This is Matthew Brazelton. His title is the Associate Pastor of Operations, but you also see him lead worship about half the time on Sundays. Um, and then Seth Trout. Uh, Seth is the Associate Pastor of Ministries. And so all three of us are really kind of like the senior leadership team of the staff here. Uh, we're also part of the elder uh, team. We're, all, we're three of 10 of the elders. I believe six of those guys are non-staff lay elders. And so um, we get to be part of that. And so that's why we're doing this as kind of the sort of, we call ourselves the point team kind of the point team, uh, we have the uh, blessing and the horror of what is about to happen, which is that you all are going to have the opportunity to text in questions. The number is there on the screen. If you're watching online, the number should be there as well. Uh, we'd love you to text in questions. We don't have any in the can. Nothing is prepared. We are walking the high wire. Um, and so... Uh, Anyway, so that's what we're doing. So we'd love you to text questions. The, the, our time together for the next, I don't know, 40 minutes or so will be as good as your questions. So if it stinks, it's your fault. No, 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 I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But let me uh, just give a couple of things on the front end here. Uh, the first one is, if you, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to do a full teaching from this, but it's interesting that Paul says this in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, was raised, and that he appeared. Paul says this, that's of first importance. We believe that everything in the Bible is true, but it's not all equally important. And so as we navigate this, we're going to try to answer questions as best as we can. Uh, but, the, but the questions that are closer to this gospel truth, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared, things that are closer to the heart of the gospel are more important. There are some issues that you could say are maybe kind of second tier or third tier issues. Uh, we're going to talk probably about all three kinds of issues, but we just want to say that on the front end is... Uh, just because we talk about it doesn't mean it's of first importance, though it's obviously important to you if you're asking about it. And so one of the things that, with that in mind is, is especially on the things that are of second or third or even really first tier, we just would like to, to say this, can we let this begin the conversation rather than end it? We are going to try to answer questions quickly so that we can get through a lot of them. A lot of the questions that you ask, could, you could do whole sermon series on them. Um, and so we're going to try to answer fairly quick so we can just get through some stuff and try to answer as many as possible. Um, but because of that, there might be things where we just say it not exactly precise. And so we'd like to ask you, would you let this begin the conversation? If there's something we say that you go, oh, that doesn't sound right, don't do what everyone out there does and go, canceled. You know, give us some grace. Uh, come talk to us. We'll all be available after the service. We would love to talk with you more. If you have questions, we want to let this begin that conversation. You can um, cancel us after the service if you want. <laughs> yeah, cancel us later, but at least let's have a conversation about it. Um, and like I said, please do give us grace. We're doing our best. We're going to try to answer as biblically and thoughtfully and with wisdom as we can. Um, but uh, none of us have a Junior Holy Spirit badge that I know of. So, um, And then also, we aren't going to get to all the questions. We will try to get as many as we can. Um, and afterward, uh, we'll probably gather up some of the questions we didn't get to, and uh, we'll address that on King and Culture podcast, which is the podcast that Seth and I regularly do. 
We'll invite Matthew to that one too. All I'm just right. making that decision right oh, now. You're man. invited. He likes being what a guest. About, I there, do so. love being a guest. It's yeah, so, so fun. Anyway, so we'll get to as many as we can. Matthew, will you pray for us? Absolutely. And then we'll go to our first question. Yeah. God, we love you. Um, let us be honest and uh, vulnerable and transparent. And God, we pray that you'd continue to build your church in this place and around this globe. And God, we're all just humbled and blessed to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, question number one. Is there a dream or vision outside of our abilities that each of you has for Gateway or Big R that will require years to achieve? Is there a dream or vision outside of our abilities that each of you has for Gateway or, or Redemption that will uh, require years to achieve? One thing, this is just a small thing, so no offense to whoever asked this, but over the years we've used the term Big R. We're trying to get rid of that and just call it Redemption because... Uh, Think about all the things that start with big. Big tech, big pharma, big oil, big brother. Are these all positive things? No, they're not. So, so big R, we're just, we're, so just so you know, we're, we're calling it redemption. But yeah, I think there's probably some of these. You, you guys want to tackle this? Matthew? What would you say? Gosh. Um, I mean, something that's really captured my heart from the time I was in junior high, it's just the unity of, of the body of Christ. And uh, it's, it's really been, this last couple of years have felt more fractured um, within our church and outside of our church, within the broader faith community, uh, Christian faith community in the Valley. And so I think something that's beyond our ability, but a big dream would just be that the, the church of Christ, those who love Jesus would be more united mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, and really just kind of on mission for him in the world and in our world. That's definitely a, a big one for me. I think a big one is uh, both funding, recruiting, and training the next generation of leaders. Like I think I grew up at a church that hired me when I was stupid and 18 as an intern, and they dealt with my sharp edges for a long time. And just the commitment to that, to training up a next generation of leaders, it's expensive emotionally and financially. And I think that across Redemption, there's a real heart for that. And I think we're a, still a remarkably young staff across all of Redemption. You know, Luke, I think uh, you're our old guy and you're 43, you know, so. I'm not 43 yet, buddy. <laughs> you know, four, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're mature for your age. You, know? <laughs> you look old. You look old, meant. yeah. yeah got it. You look a full four months older than you really are. Almost 43, you know. And, 42. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just like that, uh, I don't, we've been able to presume on our, we are the next generation. Like I could go to conferences sure. about leading the next generation and then all those, I'm the youngest person and I am the next generation. <laughs> and I don't want to presume on that and really focus on the, the next wave of leaders. Yeah. I'd say for me, I, I would say for Gateway, I would still say um, we've talked about trying to be the best friend our community has. The idea that if we went away, would anyone notice? Would people feel a sense of loss or a sense of, oh, this isn't as good as it was now because Redemption Gateway is not here? Um, that's still a dream of mine that does feel outside of our abilities. Um, I mean, that's just really, I think that's a Holy Spirit kind of move, but that's still my dream. And then for Redemption as a whole, one of the things that's just, I think, beautiful in Redemption is when Redemption started, uh, when we merged together 10 years ago, it started with a, some sort of dream for a, a kind of diverse expression of the church, kind of like when Matthew said, we're one body. Um, but now it's kind of a reality. And so we have a real, if you were to go to all uh, 10 redemption congregations, you would find like, whoa, these are 
like you'd see a real similar DNA, but you'd see real different expressions. Uh, you'd see uh, churches that are in more well-to-do communities as well as really under-resourced communities. And that is part of our dream is to continue to start new churches, new congregations that are in resource places as well as in under-resourced places. That creates all sorts of beauty and it also creates all sorts of tension. Uh, but, but most movements that I know of aren't trying to do both of those things. Um, and so that is challenging, but I also think it's something that God's in. Um, it does feel outside of our abilities, but I think God is preparing and, and has brought some of the leaders to help make that happen. So that doesn't mean each congregation is going to look the same. It means each congregation is going to look the way that redemption would look in that community with that leadership at that stage of development. And I think that'll just be kind of a fun thing. So, all right, let's uh, ask, go to the next question. What are we doing and what more could we do to engage the issue of abortion more in our community? That's a great question. Seth? So when it talks about any issue, I want to first kind of look at that language of we, so what we're doing. Uh, I want to, whenever we get that question, what are we doing? Like what we are doing is whatever you are doing. And so it's not just we equals what like the church leadership is doing, but what we are doing is always what we are doing. And so uh, what are you doing? That's partly what we're doing. What are you not doing? That's partly what we're not doing. So that's one, one side thing there. The other thing, too, is the reason that people tend to have abortions has to do with insecurity or lack of health. And so in that sense, everything we're doing as a church, uh, parenting classes, uh, financial classes, uh, counseling. counseling being available, marriage classes, all of these things are helping people become overall healthier people so that they'd feel less threatened by the addition of a child in their life. And so uh, recognizing some of like the root causes that lead to some of this stuff. Uh, also, I think even the Christmas season, humanizing unborn persons, like they're, they're, they're not persons after they're born, they're persons in the womb. And that's even part of when, the way that John the Baptist jumps when he's in the womb, when he's next to Mary, when Jesus is in the womb. So being able to talk about the dignity of humanity from the point of conception is a big part of that. Our last year's Christmas offering, we went and did, uh, we gave a lot to Vineyard Pregnancy Center, helping people who aren't resourced to take care of kids, um, both be able to see and experience and and be, feel connected to their child and provide opportunities and resources uh, there. And so this is one of those issues, like uh, everything we're doing is Support. It's not for this issue, but the, the downstream effect of our ministry as a church uh, is, is remarkably pro-life. And so yeah. that's a big part of it. I'd say another piece of it is the foster care and adoption ministry that we have and the priority around that. Um, it's interesting if you followed any of the kind of argumentation around the Supreme Court case right now that's kind of being considered. Um, and man, I pray that Roe versus Wade would be struck down and it'd be left to the states. I mean, that would be really great. But one of the arguments that uh, one of the justices asked was, well, uh, couldn't people who didn't want to, you know, be parents, couldn't they uh, do the, oh man, I forget the name of the law, but there's a law where you can basically drop a child off at a hospital or a fire station or uh, you guys, I hear some of you murmuring, safe haven law, yeah. Um, well, if that were to happen, that means some people have to step up to take care of those kids and that's going to be us. And we have the resources and we have the training and we have the support systems and we have some of that in place and uh, may, may God allow that to take place. All right, next question. Is pornography use grounds for divorce? Is Gateway doing anything to confront pornography and support wives? If so, what? Um, why don't we take the second question first? Yeah. Um, do you want to tackle that? Sure. Yeah, we've, we do have um, a, a group that 
that we offer that's uh, a pornography kind of recovery group. Um, we try to be fairly sensitive with how we promote it and, and talk about it because it, it's it can be a kind of a private mm -hmm. thing. But uh, that's something we've done and um, continue to do. I don't know if we have if we're offering it this semester. I think we are. Yeah. 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 A lot of what we've uh, seen is uh, pornography in most marriage counseling ends up being one of the root issues, one of the root causes. And so a lot of times what will happen is uh, wives will apply for counseling and come in and try to get help. And there's usually this like sense of abandonment. Uh, so it's not just my husband is struggling with lust, but it's like he's struggling with lust to the point where I feel like he's checked out or he's abandoned, he's emotionally gone. So it's pornography is like one of the ingredients in aloof males almost always. Uh, if I talk to Mark Andrus, who does a lot of our counseling, he's like almost 100% of folks who come in uh, pornography is like a contributor or a, a cause to whatever is going on. And so a lot of times it'll begin with wives come in asking for help. They'll meet with um, Vicky or someone on Vicky's team and work for support and then end up being the husband kind of drags their feet in because now their wife is um, being able to be healthy enough to like put boundaries up and not let certain things take place. And even on as pornography is grounds for divorce, you know, when Jesus says in, in Matthew there's no divorce except for the uh, sexual immorality, the word there's porneia, uh, which is doesn't mean literally pornography, but it means like it's a junk drug term meaning like sexual infidelity of any kind. And so that's not to say that, you know, because Jesus also says if you commit adultery, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so uh, it's not just ratcheting things up, but it's recognizing that there are folks in our congregation that we've talked to who their pornography use constitutes a form of abandonment and ongoing total just uh, sexual infidelity. And so uh, it's one of those like sometimes, but not necessarily every time. And it really is a, a, a kind of a case-by-case -case issue. But it's important to know that the grounds that Jesus offers for divorce is the word porneia, which means sexual impropriety outside of the covenant of marriage. Yeah. I also say one of the best books I read this year was called The Death of Porn by Ray Ortland. It's a short little book. Um, Ray's in his 70s and writes it really as an older man trying to help younger men uh, have a different vision for sexuality. It's really, really good. I would recommend it to anybody. Um, so, next question. What does Redemption believe about mental health struggles? We believe in them. Yeah. They're real. Yeah. Yeah, we believe they're real. Um, I think we believe that, that they can be uh, physical in nature. So, there's a place at times for uh, physical intervention. They can be uh, spiritual, they can be related to your uh, your past story. Um, oftentimes, that's part of the equation, and so we try to take uh, kind of a multifaceted approach uh, to this topic. And it it certainly seems to be something that is growing, in culturally and within the church. We've we've seen it um, in our younger folks. We've seen it in older folks, and so um, it's a real thing. And we need the Lord's grace. I think psychiatrists. Uh, you know, can be received as providence from God in the way that chemical imbalances co contribute to things. You know, the mind is remarkably physical, which means there's physical causes and physical effects that are contributing to these things. And so we don't ever want to over-spiritualize it and say all of this is just like demons or something like that. But we also don't want to say that uh, our faith and connection to God and our relationship with Him doesn't affect that either. And so we're, we're whole persons, mind, body, soul as a as a unit and you wouldn't treat a broken leg just by praying. Yeah. Uh, 
you would not pray, but you also get a cast on it. And so sometimes uh, even just chemical interventions can serve as a cast. Sometimes they're like long-term things that keep people sustained. Uh, again, no issues. It's one of those, every person's story is a little different. Every person's struggle is a little different. Yeah. I'd say as a church leadership too with our counseling team, we really do try to stay in our lane and acknowledge our own limits in terms of training and expertise on some of these things. And so um, that's something we try to do. I don't know how perfectly we do that. I would also say uh, I have seen some people, uh, not most, but some Christians who do need, you know, based on medical interventions and things, medication, the danger potentially is just don't swallow a worldview with the medication. God is still on the throne. You're not defined by your uh, mental health issue. Um, and so don't imbibe an entire kind of anti-God mentality, um, even as you use the things that God has graciously given us uh, in his common grace. So, All right, next question. Is there a biblical foundation for church membership? Why do you find church membership important? Uh, I'll take this one. Um, yes, uh, there is a biblical uh, foundation for church membership. So for those of you that aren't familiar with it, church membership is kind of this formal process of saying, I'm not just going to attend a church, but I want to partner with, covenant with, uh, participate with a church. Um, in our case, it involves going through the rooted class and uh, sitting down and having a conversation with one of the elders and uh, actually signing a covenant. The elders sign a covenant with you and you sign a covenant with the elders that, about how you're going to participate in the life of the church. Um, there's not a biblical foundation for that level of specificity. And there's definitely not a verse that says, thou shalt be a church member. What I would say is the biblical foundation for it is it is entirely assumed in the New Testament. The New Testament writers are assuming that you are committed to your local assembly of church. They were not familiar with the idea that you could just sort of be kind of a church hopper, church shopper, church consumer. That was just not a concept in the New Testament. And so the assumption is you are bought in and you are part of a local church. And so part of why we find church membership important is because in a culture that views uh, all of church as kind of a buffet, where you take this from here and that from here, and I watch that there, and I get this there, and I take that class there, my kids go there. We're saying, hey, we actually think it's a good practice. It's a wise practice. It's, a, it's an important practice to say, no, I'm committed with this, with this church, with these people, with this family, um, and I'm not going to just bolt when things in my life go bad or when relationships get tense. Like I'm going to actually sign up for a level of encouragement and accountability and connection because I know it's good for me. So. Seth, you're, you have your Bible open. That's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, so this is 1 Corinthians 5, and this is an example of the difference. So when the churches were smaller and their little house church movements, you kind of could know who was in and who was out. Like we have a lot of folks who come and who are attending, who are testing the waters, who are kicking, kicking the tires on it, and that's great. Like I want people to be able to come who aren't like sold out for Christ and are going like, is this my thing? Is not my thing? What's God doing? I'm not sure if he's there, but I'm kind of curious. Um, but there's a kind of a difference between what Paul talks about is outsiders and insiders of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, um, since then you need to go out of the world. So he's not saying don't associate with sexually immoral people who are inside the church. People who are saying, Jesus is my Lord, and also I do whatever I want sexually. Those people who are kind of walking that hypo hypocritical thing, is like, it's, you shouldn't break bread with them. You shouldn't share communion with them. When you're sitting down saying, we're all committed to following Jesus together, if one of those people is just unrepentantly committing sexual sin, you should not 
include them in that table. He's, so he's not saying don't have non-Christian friends who sin sexually because then you'd have no non-Christian friends. That's not the point. So he's saying, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not those. It is inside the church who are called to judge. And so by judging, he's not meaning judging whether people are saved or not, but he's going, there's a reality that if you're following Jesus and I'm following Jesus, I'm here to help you be a better follower of Jesus. And there's like this, we as a family trying to help one another be a better family uh, is, is part of the deal. And so being able to know who's like insider inside the church, I mean, people are going like, yes, I'm in, this is my church. And who is an outsider, meaning people that they're going to kind of do what they're doing, but they're not really sold out to Jesus. And so we use that insider outsider thing as insiders are those covenant members who've said, yes, please shepherd me if you see me wandering. Whereas other people at the church are folks who are maybe kicking the tires or less committed, or they haven't really asked to be like shepherded on that level. And so that's some of the insider-outsider thing that I think helps us get towards what we call now church membership. Yeah, I'd add one more thing just briefly. As we are uh, kind of charged by Paul and First Timothy as overseers to shepherd and mm-hmm. oversee the flock, it really helps us to know who that is. Because there are folks, like Seth said, who are, check- or who are kind of kicking the tires and checking things out and who aren't really asking for that kind of leadership. But then there are folks who've kind of said, this is my church home. Mm. And so that, that assumption of kind of even assigning roles within the body requires that we all understand like who, who's in, who's out, who are we trying to do this thing with. So. Good. All right, next question. Why are there so many English versions of the Bible and why did Gateway choose ESV? That's a fantastic question. Um, the, uh, so why did Gateway choose the ESV? So, all right, so I'll, I'll explain this sort of quickly. Why there are so many English versions is because God is incredibly gracious to the English-speaking world. That's why. Um, I mean, it is an absolute embarrassment of riches that you can pull up your phone with 50 different English versions, and there are places in the world that don't have a version. And so praise God that there are so many different ways to to enjoy the Bible in your own language. Everywhere that the Bible has been translated into the common language of the people, revival has happened. And so this is great news that there are so many translations and that there are so many good ones. So to kind of explain it simply, uh, there are, when we did a whole five-hour seminar related to this last year called Scribes and Scriptures, where some professors from Phoenix Seminary came and talked through all of this stuff. I'll try to be a little simpler than they were. Uh, But the idea is basically there are word-for-word translations and there are thought-for-thought translations. So let me just give you this example. If I said to you, it's raining cats and dogs, and you had to translate that into Spanish, how would you translate it? It's raining gatos y perros. (laughs) Or would you go, okay, thought-for-thought is like, no, it's raining really, really hard. And so there's different kinds of translation philosophies. Some are more word for word, some are more thought for thought. Um, And uh, there's different kind of reasons to potentially approach it different ways. Uh, ESV, uh, the reason we chose that back when we planted the church uh, was because um, it was more on the word for word spectrum. It's not the most word for word translation, but it's a very good word for word translation. Um, And I think that that, there are times I think in the Bible where the author is being intentionally ambiguous with a certain word choice. And um, I like that the, the more word-for-word approach tends to leave some of that ambiguity, and it makes you as an interpreter try to wrestle with that. And so um, that's why we chose that. Um, but I don't know that it's, I mean, it's not uh, more inspired or anything. Uh, there are times when I'll read it and uh, look at a particular thing as I'm studying and go, 
they missed it here, you know, or like, I think this translation seems to get to the heart of this word better or something like that. But yeah, language also just changes over time and from region to region. So even in English, you think about, is it pop or is it soda? And that's just like one it's Coke. Yeah. Or is it Coke? Yeah. And like, that's just one example of all along the way, when you're making a translation, you have to make decisions about how to bring this word into this language in this time, in this place, in this culture. Yeah. And so updated translations are part of that because language changes from region to region and, and over time. The way we speak now is not the same as 100 years ago. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's just part of the human creative process as language develops and evolves. And they're adding words to the dictionary all the time. And that's just, so the ESV reading now will be less helpful than updated translation that we have in 50 years because language will change in 50 years. Yeah, and the manuscript evidence, we have more manuscripts, we have more sense of what it really said then. Uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, I like to read multiple translations when I study the Bible, and when you realize that all the translations basically translate a word the same way, you go, okay, that means something. When a lot of them translate it differently, that tells you something too. You go, okay, that must be a word that's hard to translate, or it might be a word that has different kinds of uses depending on the context. And so I think the studying it in multiple translations is actually a really good way to dig deeper into the scriptures. So, uh, Next question. As pastors, what patterns of sin and brokenness do you see over and over? Are there usual, ship, usual suspects that shipwreck people's lives, and how would you admonish us to avoid them? Uh, sure, yeah. Yes, there are. Uh, it's interesting. I'll just say this quickly and then hand it to one of you guys. I, it, uh, Seth and I often talk about, as we're preparing sermons, how much the Bible seems to address power, sex, and money. And you think power, sex, and money, and you think of, you know, important people in some big place, you know, far off in a smoke-filled room. But all of us in our hearts are dealing with power. We want to be in control. We want to have a say. We want to be heard. We want to be listened to sex. So much of our world is saying that that's the most important thing. It's the main thing about your identity, and there's no way that doesn't affect us. Money. Jesus says it's the, the scripture says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. The main competitor with God seems to be money. Jesus says you can't love God and money. And um, money is often the driver for the other two, and they all seem kind of intertwined. So I, I do think like at a, at a macro level, those issues just feel like they're always in play, for me, and I think for everyone I know who's trying to follow Jesus. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, loneliness is mm. a big kind of undergirding uh, problem in our society. Uh, I think some of the kind of social media, media in general stuff um, is connected to that. Uh, it also feels like just insecurity, people looking for identity, looking for their place, where do they belong, um, where do I fit, who's my group? Uh, these these sorts of questions will will lead folks down down paths that aren't necessarily always um, the most redemptive and helpful. Seth, I'm curious for you. So we've kind of answered more on the general side. If you were to go, okay, here, hmm. right, like things that usual suspects that pop up in our context, in our community, that if you were in a Des Moines or if you were in Vermont or if you were in Peoria, might not feel the same way. Uh, anything come to mind? The first three things that popped in my head were sex, money, power. <laughs> and power could be related to politics, people giving way too much emotional energy to what people somewhere else are doing and legislating. And like the, the amount of 
time not spent loving your neighbor because you're spending it anxiously spiraling about what politicians are doing. I think it's a power control possibility thing. I do, I do think politics matters, but I think, especially in Arizona, there's like this kind of, but where the, you know, the, the wild west out here. And so there's like this concern about government and control and those things. And I, mostly I'm not even saying that caring about those things is a problem, but I'm saying emotional energy is wasted that could be spent elsewhere. That's a big one of it. I think rites of passage, I was talking to someone at a New Year's Eve party who's like wanting to provide for their family. I'm like, that's good. But I also see that in 10 years, that will equal you working 70 hour weeks in the name of providing your family and you being emotionially absent from your wife and kids because you're providing for your family. And you'll end up providing the wrong things for your family, which is a bunch of money and not yourself. And, and then the, the, the sex thing is a big one and right loneliness. I had a pastor one time when I was growing up tell me that you need a one like uh, an indicator light, a warning light that needs to happen. When you see this going off, you need to stop, probably reach out to someone call. He called it HALT, H-A-L-T, which is mean you're most at risk, which was horny, angry, lonely, tired. Mm. HALT, you know, like, because what you're about to do might mm. be a problem. And so he's like, that's when you know you need to call someone. And uh, mm. so yeah. those are like indicator lights that when you're finding those things kind of lingering, uh, and you need to like address them or deal with them in a healthy way. So, so let's go to that last part of the question though. How would you admonish us to avoid them? Right? There's a great, uh, you can find it on YouTube, Bob Newhart, you know, skit where he just tells everyone to stop it. That's his counseling advice. Just stop it. Have you thought about stopping it? Right? So, so that tends to not work very well. If we could stop it, we would stop it. So how, if we notice these things popping up, how would we try to avoid them? I think getting in a community of friends that you trust, that you can share honestly with and pray for one another uh, with is huge. And most people that are really struggling, like that sounds like the worst thing. Um, but that there's actually more and more, not only biblical support, but um, they're doing like neuroscience kind of discoveries on how actually sharing your burdens with a, with a empathetic, sympathetic listener who loves you can actually provide healing and, and growth. And so the church really, this is something we really can provide uh, to the community for, for healing is a community filled with grace and, uh, and kindness. And so you know, um, a lot of the way. ministry we do here, we have some reactive ministry, meaning there's a red flag, let's respond to it. But most of the ministry we do is what we call like proactive ministry, not reactive ministry, which is before there's a problem, you get involved in a men's group or a women's group or an RC, you go to Rooted, you get connected. And so that like when the uh, garbage hits the fan, you have people there to help you uh, clean it up. Because yeah. if sometimes a lot of folks, like even like in the counseling room, uh, a lot of people who come in for counseling are people who just haven't yet gotten in a community that if they had a good community, they may not have needed to go to counseling. A lot of people who come to counseling did need to go to counseling because of severity or intensity of things. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people, if they had like one or two close, good, attentive, curious, vulnerable friends, they wouldn't need uh, what we're giving them in the counseling room. Yeah. First on one, there's a lot of emphasis on walking in the light. And a lot of times I think we think that walking in the light is just walking in obedience, but walking in the light is also being open about the areas you're struggling. And it's uh, sin grows in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you can say it out loud and confess your sins, not just to the Lord, but to someone else, it really does lose its power uh, to a significant degree. And so walking in the light, I think, is a big part of it. So.
Let's uh, keep going. All right, next question. Is the creation account in Genesis literal or allegorical? And what ramifications does that have on the gospel? So, uh, Seth, you're a Jew. <laughs> you have a lot of familiarity. Genesis is having a great week, by the way. This is a great week for the book of Genesis. Everyone's reading it. It's amazing. So since people are reading it right now, uh, what, what, how would you approach that? So I'd say the Genesis account is literally allegorical. <laughs> so it's uh, the way that it's written, especially Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 through 11, is describing real events and doing so in such a way that it's, it's a prophetic pushback against other creation accounts that existed in its day. And so uh, when... So in that sense, would it be allegorically literal? Possibly, yeah. yeah. So, I'm not, so I mean, so like I'm saying, just because at, at its root, what you're saying is that it, this stuff really happened. It really happened. So it's but concrete. the description of it it's is more poetic. It's describing reality in an intentionally uh, usurping, prophetic, cutting, pushing back way. And so you could read the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you have a story which is all about the way that the gods made the earth in order to serve uh, God. Made the gods made humans so the humans could serve God. Mm -hmm. And here you have the, the, uh, this account where God's making the humans and God doesn't need anything from them. You have uh, the Romans, I'm not the Romans, the Egyptians worshiping the sun. And here you have uh, God creating the lesser light and the greater light. He doesn't even call it by name. He calls them these lights. You know, it's like, I'm not even call it the sun. I'm going to call it a big light. You know, and so like there's almost like this attack on uh, you guys are worshiping the sun, but our God made the big one. And he made the small one. Big deal. And so there's, so it's describing real events, but in a way that's designed to be offensive or pushing back on, especially the ancient Near Eastern context. And so you have to read it both through like a poetic lens, like this is uh, describing reality in a way that's caused to purposely drawing attention to different aspects of it, um, but also it's it's describing reality. So it's not just help, a, it's certainly not just an allegory, and it's certainly not like you set up a video camera. And recorded it. It's not a yeah. scientific text. Yeah, so it's the genre would be historiographical, yeah. meaning history is like if you had a, set up a head up. History would be you set up a camcorder and you get exactly what happened and you press play. That's what happened. Whereas histi historiography is like telling of history in such a way to make a point. Yeah, well, I was going to say one of the things that helps me understand that is to realize it was written by Moses after the Exodus. So he's teaching the people of Israel who their God is that has just brought them out of Egypt. And so therefore he is doing a yeah, the, lot the, of the people would polemics, have had, a lot yeah. of, hey, you, you know what they say, but here's who God really is. Um, it's more of a thing like that, like you're saying, than it is like a, you know, here's the security camera footage of it. What about the second question? What are the ramifications of that on the gospel? There are ramifications on Adam in Romans chapter 5. You hear talk about there's the first Adam who all died in Adam. And in Romans 5, Paul says, but Jesus... Um, all will live in Jesus. And so uh, the, the literalness or like the, what the theology is called the federal headship, meaning that you're either in covenant with Adam, in covenant with death and sin and commitment to your own way, or in covenant with Christ, who is uh, life and newness. And so everyone is either in Adam or they are in Christ. And I think if you don't have a literal Adam, you kind of lose out on Paul's whole argument on why people can be saved in Romans chapter five. And so uh, the, the exact nature of how evolution played out in development of species uh, feels like a debatable issue within Redemption Church, but the literal 
personhood of Adam as the first human in whom all humans are to be found, uh, to me feels like a theologically closed case based on the way that Paul talks about humanity in Romans chapter 5. And so if people can be saved in Christ or not, does really affect whether you believe in there's a, a literal Adam or not. That's good. Let's try to get a couple more in before we wrap. Uh, next one. How far does perseverance of the saints go? If someone was baptized and had fruit earlier in life, but then walked away, are they still saved? So uh, just to kind of explain, uh, perseverance of the saints is kind of this doctrine um, that came especially out of the Reformation, but I would say out of the Bible, that uh, once you're saved, you're always saved. You don't uh, lose your salvation. If you're truly converted, you will persevere to the end. God will keep you. God will hold on to you. Jesus says, I, I don't lose. Uh, none of these sheep have fallen out of my hand. Um, but we do have this experience of someone who professes faith, even is baptized, even seems to have a changed life, who then says, nope, not interested. I don't want to be part of this anymore. I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And uh, often that's a very personal thing, not just a kind of theoretical, theological thing. It really is painful, and we sort of wrestle with that. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, we, we, we believe that God is the one who does the saving, and so that's really good news. Uh, but we also believe that uh, that kind of the fruit is the evidence of what, what the tree is. And so um, I think for someone that has walked away, uh, they, they, they may or may not have been saved and then would continue to be saved if they've been saved, but uh, they should be nervous about their confidence in their salvation if they've walked away from the Lord. The scriptures would seem to say like, hey, you don't have a lot of confidence if you're not living in a way that would, would bear the fruit of the gospel. So the connection to enduring fruit really matters. Yeah. You know, the parable of the sower, you have... Yeah, that's where I went, too. There you go, yeah. You have seeds that are cast, and there's initial fruit, but some of it's choked out. And so I think this is, like, I, I don't want us to be a church that's going around asking if people are really saved or not, because I mostly don't think that's helpful. I do think that assurance of salvation and salvation is, is different. Like, how, how certain I feel of my salvation, or how confident I feel in admonishing you into salvation is assurance. It's not salvation. Only God can judge salvation, and so I never want to be a people... Who are deciding whether people are real Christians or not. But I do want to be able to tell people, like, hey, look at this parable of the sower. There's seeds that had fruit and it choked off. And like the message of this text is you should be concerned. You should be worried. And you should recognize that. And even just this understanding that sometimes, you know, the the fruit of persecution comes and like the the cost of I have to give up sex, money, and power. Well, never mind. And that's first John talks about they've gone out from us, showing that they were never of us. Like there's this closeness that end up walking away. And I, I like Mark Dever. He talks about it like this. He's like, he would say things like, I'm not saying you are not a Christian, but I'm saying I don't think you're a Christian. <laughs> so it basically is the same thing. But there's like this, because uh, only God can judge someone's heart yeah. and only they with their conscience before the Lord by themselves can really know if they're like really believe or don't believe. Yeah. And so I just want to encourage people to examine themselves. That's First Corinthians. You know, mm -hmm. Examine yourself to see if you really have the faith. Because uh, I do think we want to live examined lives. Yeah. All right, let's try to do two more if we can, depending on how. Oh, cool. Are there any plans to teach through any end times books? Revelation, Ezekiel, 
Daniel. Um, there are not any plans, but there are desires for that. So our preaching calendar for next year is all set, and Revelation, Ezekiel, nor Daniel are in it. Um, but I would love to preach Revelation. That was kind of on my list as, as we kind of put that all together with the other teaching pastors across Redemption. Uh, that's something I'd like to do in the next few years. Last summer, I actually took a course on Revelation with one of my seminary professors, and uh, it just was electric. And uh, it was, uh, I think it's profound for our times, and not for the reasons most people think. So I would love to teach on it. Well, now uh, we're very interested. Yeah. Well, so here's an online course that I'm creating. <laughs> for, no, just kidding. Uh, but yeah, maybe someday. Next question. Are there any specific areas of ministry that need extra support as we go into the new year? Yeah. Yeah, I think big time. The, the biggest thing we've seen drop off from like through the pandemic and et cetera, et cetera, is our guest services and kids volunteers. Like that's the biggest ones. Like we tend to have more people who come who are going like, I want to help lead small groups. Like we keep having a great number of people doing that. And if you want to do that, you should definitely do that. You know, but especially like on Sundays, like we're kind of getting to the point now where we're praying about, do we need to add a third service? And one of the things that gives us anxiety about that is guest services volunteers and kids volunteers and having people who can love kids and help people feel welcomed is like a central aspect of what we do every Sunday morning. And so if we're going to add a third service because we're kind of getting full, which would be the best type of problem to have, we, we need people to do those kind of basic, like, hosp, like hospitality is grace with skin on. And if we can't do hospitality for people and their children, then we don't really want to do it. And so that's, those are probably the two that pop in my head biggest. Yeah, we have some behind-the-scenes needs as well. If you like to do like production or tech or um, even moving tables and chairs, we have needs for that too. Yeah. So I said two. I wonder if he thought they were... Okay, we're going to not do that one because I can't do that in one minute. Well, I can, actually. Uh, how does Gateway view the LGBTQ community? We view them as people made in the image of God who desperately need to be loved and cared for, who have uh, needs and sin. Uh, like me and you and everyone. And uh, there's obviously more that can be said about that issue, but how we view those people. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the animating powers and principalities and demonic spirits in the world that deceive all of us about all kinds of things. And so uh, we, we rest in Jesus and we love our neighbors. So, how should Christians consider the legal use of alcohol and recreational drugs like marijuana? All right. How should Christians consider the legal use of alcohol? You repeat the question when you want to give everyone time to think of an answer. That's a little inside strategy. I don't know if you knew about that. So, how should Christians consider legal use of alcohol and recreational drugs like marijuana? I'll kick us off Go and then you can fill in the, the gaps. Um, I think we want to consider, first of all, that our primary call is to love our neighbor well. And so how we kind of navigate a lot of um, gray area issues, that should be a factor that we consider. I think oftentimes we're, we're just prone to kind of think about ourselves first, but we really want to try to flinch toward thinking about others first. So um, how do those things help me love my neighbor would be a great question to ask. Um, also, scriptures do kind of prohibit being under the influence of something to, that would kind of limit your ability to make um, sound decisions, you know, 
guided and led by the Holy Spirit. So uh, I think you know, overdoing it in those areas would be a real concern. And then on the marijuana side, I don't think it's legal on the federal side yet if it's not for medicinal purposes. And so you need to consider just how to obey governing authorities. What is legal here? That. It in is. In Arizona. Yeah. You've got a whole like government yeah. can figure itself out. Shocker. Yeah. yeah. I also think there's some real, there's real medicinal I'm told. Sure, there's medicinal. This question stuff. is recreational. This is recreational, so I'm not talking about the medicinal thing. Yeah, I mean, what's been hard for me is like the Bible uh, is clear that wine's involved and that there's alcohol involved, and there's lots of uh, there's actually a place where Paul tells Timothy, "Hey, you should drink some wine for the stomach issue you're having. It might help you." Um, That's why you all drink wine too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The stomach. My stomach issue is flaring up again. Uh, I don't know if y'all Every were day here. at four o'clock, I have a stomach issue. <laughs> I don't know if y'all were here at the last Christmas Eve service, but I asked all the kids what did mom want for Christmas, and one kid said mom wanted 19 more bottles of wine, <laughs> which was the best thing I'd heard in a long time. So, um, but the Proverbs are filled with places that talk about the folly of alcohol, and if you want to find someone who's like blowing it in life, find someone who drinks too much. Um, Paul warns, as you said, about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be, have the controlling power of your life and your heart be the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's where it is with, al- with alcohol. With marijuana, it's a little, I think it's a little trickier because, um, and I need to do probably a little more work on this. I, it seems like it's a bit harder to not be as governed by marijuana. Like you can drink alcohol in moderation. The, the, rec- the, Recreational marijuana seems to, the THC seems to be higher than it used to be. I, I don't know, but I just would tread more lightly there. I think. Do you have any? I don't really know on that one. I should know. There's a dispensary like three seconds from here. So yeah, I you can probably, smell it. Sometimes. Should I ask them? I don't know. What would they say? Yeah, they'd probably say, "What are you doing here?" Yeah, probably say. Uh, yeah, I think the first story that you have of alcohol in the in the scriptures is of uh, Noah making a fool of himself and embarrassing the family. And so it's worth noticing just the, again, the love your neighbor aspects of some of this stuff. I know no lives have been saved by alcohol use, and a lot of lives have been lost because of alcohol use. So just on some of the economic things, you need to be honest about that. I mean, my dad and I brew beer from time to time. Um, I, I probably drink more than both of you. Certainly drink more than both of you. So, <laughs> what, so what about marijuana, though? Uh, marijuana, I do think the call in Ephesians 4 to not be a controlled by alcohol but instead be filled with the spirit this idea of like even spirits that animate and give shape to personality uh you can't die from thc overdose like you can die from an alcohol overdose uh but i know more people personally who have become bums and losers and non-contributors through just kind of regularly numbing themselves or avoiding dealing with their trauma or avoiding dealing with reality by just kind of just numbing out and getting high and zoning out so it's I feel less kind of certain about like, like the wrong question is, is it right or wrong to do it once? And more like this kind of to exist as a high person is not a full picture of human flourishing. And it's just not good for you or your neighbors. And you're going to not be who you could be if you are regularly buzzed or high on some regular point of view. I mean, I've, I've never used marijuana. I don't plan to, I just don't, especially now part of it's like my conscience wouldn't let me do it. So I'm not going to do it. I don't have a really great argument for it. Besides, we're called into sober, spirit-filled, loving, living. And use or overuse of some of those things just gets in the way of that. Yeah, Yeah, the question of why feels really important. And it's probably a question that you should have someone who knows you well help you answer. 
-hmm. Great. All right, next question. What does the Bible tell us about angels? Are they around protecting us, guiding us, and keeping us from going the wrong path? Great question. Great question. Uh, well, the Bible tells us they're real. Um, the Bible just assumes they're real. It doesn't even argue that they're real. It just has lots of accounts of angels showing up in places. I think it's interesting that uh, when angels show up, they tend to show up as warriors of light. Uh, they often are described um, in kind of like human and even masculine kinds of terms, which I don't, I'm not making an argument that, that angels are male, uh, but they're definitely not cute little chubby babies uh, floating around with uh, little wings and harps. That's not, they're, they're terrifying is what they are, right? Anytime someone sees an angel, they fall on their face because they're petrified. So um, angels are, are real. They seem to be around the throne worshiping God. Uh, there's times when they are used as messengers um, by God to communicate to people. The Christmas story is a kind of famous example of that. Um, that question of are they around protecting us, guiding us, and keeping us from going the wrong path? Um, I think the answer might be maybe, but there's not a great deal of emphasis in the Scripture that, it, that we should be relying on angels to do it. Rather, we should be relying on the Spirit Right? Even that last question of don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What Paul's saying there in Ephesians 5 is get drunk on the Spirit. Have the controlling influence of your life that's keeping you on the right path. Be the Holy Spirit of God. Um, let His Word and His Spirit keep you on the right path. Um, Hebrews does, the book of Hebrews talks about that you should practice hospitality because you might be um, entertaining angels without knowing it. And so there's lots of mystery here. I think there's a lot we don't know, but... Um, but they're, I mean, angels are, they're real. Anything you guys would add? That's great. Okay. I like that. I got a great. All right, here we go. Uh, next one. What is Luke's role with redemption? And who else is a part of the leadership team? What is Tyler Johnson's role now that he returned from sabbatical? Do you want Should me I answer this one? <laughs> or... Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, redemption is uh, 10 congregations. It's a family of 10 congregations across Arizona, various different sizes and uh, contexts, various kinds of communities. It's interesting, not all the congregations are, are very suburban contexts like we are. I, I actually think we kind of have congregations in four different kinds of communities. We have kind of suburban, we have kind of college uh, type contexts. We have some congregations that are in more kind of an urban working poor area, and then some that are in kind of an urban hipster kind of place. And so uh, it's really interesting, different stages. We kind of say we want each redemption congregation to look like redemption would look in that place with that leadership at that stage of development. So um, anyway, so that's what redemption is, just for those of you that aren't as familiar with it. Now, we came together uh, actually as a merger 10 years ago, coming up on 11 years ago. And the whole idea of that was we thought we could develop leaders and plant new congregations more effectively and that would be healthier and stronger over time if we did that. And so uh, Tyler Johnson, who's mentioned there, uh, pretty quickly after that merger was kind of viewed as the leader of leaders. What was interesting is he wasn't ever leading a congregation. He was just kind of like the the visionary leader that a lot of us as leaders were looking to. Um, a few years ago, he took on more of a leadership role at Redemption Gilbert, and then last year, um, he basically moved back into what he'd been doing all along, which was kind of providing visionary, big picture, uh, future-oriented leadership for redemption. So that's what he's doing. He's back from the sabbatical he took last year, 
and is uh, fully functioning in that role. And then my role with Redemption, about half my time is spent um, as the executive pastor of Redemption Arizona. So I'm trying to provide coaching and encouragement to our other lead pastors. I'm trying to provide uh, good systems and structures and making sure that things are happening so that we can really fulfill our mission and our calling together. And so a lot of the pastors' meetings, I'm involved in helping shape that to some degree. Um, And then the question about who else is part of a leadership team, there's an overall leadership team of Redemption uh, Arizona that is made up of all the lead pastors from every congregation, uh, plus about four people that are, uh, have a more kind of overall role um, in helping lead Redemption. So, yeah. One of the shorter ways I answer that when I get that shorter question. Shorter than what I just did? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah a little <laughs> I shorter, can imagine yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Is that those guys say Luke's role, Tyler's role? And I said, Luke's main job is to be concerned about how we're going to be better the next two years. Tyler's main job is to be concerned about how we're going to be here and leave something to our grandkids in 50 years. Yeah. Like when I talk to Tyler about stuff, he's texting me about books he's reading about futurist, multiverse, augmented realities and how we're going to be a faithful presence in the year 2050 and how we're going to fund leadership development structures for the next hundred years. And whereas Luke's going, how are we going to be more clear and better in the next couple of years? Yeah. So yeah, that's good. You're short-term anxious. He's long-term anxious. (laughs) (laughs) Am I? Yeah. I don't think so. Or concern. I mean, preoccupation with making it better. Uh, The other thing is just for you to know is about uh, 15% or 15 to 20% of Matthew's time. I don't know how you would calculate 15% of your time, but Matthew also provides some financial help to some of the other congregations in terms of helping them with their budgets and navigating real estate contracts and stuff like that. Um, And then Seth's part of the theology team. So there is a lot of, uh, you know, gateway fingerprints on the rest of redemption in a way that's kind of fun. So, all right, next question. Is COVID a sign from revelation? No. (laughs) Next question. No. Uh, Okay. I agree. Why not? Uh, One of the things we have a tendency to do is to read the Bible egocentrically, meaning what's happening to us and feels important to us, we read it into the text. Another way you can talk about it is like eisegesis. You're just, rather than like exegeting or pulling out what the text is actually saying, you're reading into your current situation or current current events and what's going on. And Revelation um, was not preoccupied with what would be happening in 2022 when John was writing it. And uh, in one sense, we've always been in the end times since the resurrection of Christ. The New Testament talks about us as being in the end times. Mm And so the, the dawn is near, or the end of the dawn is near, and, and this idea that the future is broken into the present at the dawn of the new age, at the resurrection of Christ, is there. And um, what we don't want to do is, you know, plagues and pestilences have been around for a long time. And one of the main ways we want to read the book of Revelation is understanding that it's speaking to the church for all spaces and times, or it's speaking to a church in the first century with implications for the church everywhere and all over the time. And so, you know, the Black Plague was substantially worse than covid not that COVID's not bad, but it was, it was worse. And I'm sure people then were going like, oh, is this revelation was talking about pestilence? You know, and, but there's just always pestilence. There's always things uh, assaulting God's creation through deprivation of goodness. And that's part of what the revelation, the book of Revelation is getting at is this chronic wave after wave after wave of sickness and death mm. before Jesus comes back and makes all things new. is just part of our reality. Yeah. And so we don't want to go like, here's what's happening to me. Let me find it in here. Yeah, it's a sign of Genesis 3, sign that there's sin in the world, sign that we want God to make all things new. But yeah, I'd agree with that. It is really interesting how it seems like 
in unstable times, people want to somehow take control by finding things, secrets, uh, secret wisdom, secret knowledge, whether it's connected to the Bible or something else, to somehow make us feel secure. Mm-hmm. But, but the scriptures are clear. Like, the Lord is in control. He's where we put our faith and trust. It's not in you know, rightly interpreting a cryptic prophetic passage. It's in understanding the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, mm. understanding that he loves you, that he's with you. Um, it's not a mystery. The, the Lord hasn't hidden the gospel. It's very clear. That's where we want to really kind of put our yeah, focus and our hope. We have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation, not because it was written in code that we have to figure out. We have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation because it was written 2,000 years ago to people with different imaginations and ways of thinking about history than we do. And so like the language gap, the culture gap is one of the reasons it's hard, not because John was intentionally being unclear so that we could sit around 2,000 years later and argue about, is this virus the virus that they're talking about here? That's not the point. Yeah. All right, next question. How and when should Christians choose to actively engage in civil disobedience? I feel like those two questions might be related. Uh, at least I, I heard a lot more about civil disobedience in the last few years related to COVID, I think. So how and when should Christians choose to actively engage in civil disobedience? There, there are two kind of main filters that I think about. One is in Acts 5, they are disobeying the government who's telling them not to preach the gospel, and they say it's better to obey God than man, and they kind of make peace with dealing with the consequences of obeying God and disobeying man. So that's a big one there. The other one that, come, that comes to mind is in Romans 14, when Paul talks about the need to consider your conscience in acting, mm-hmm. and how they're talking about food sacrifice to idols and two different types of people, and how Paul is saying it's objectively okay to eat this food that was sacrificed to idols, but there's all these weaker conscience Christians who their conscience won't let them take the food sacrificed to idols. And so that's not really a matter of obeying God as much as a matter of honoring your conscience. And I do think for Christians to honor their conscience, meaning like if something you just can't get on board with it, even if like there's a reason or something like that, like food sacrifice to idols. Paul goes, we know idols aren't real. We know this is not a problem. But if you're going to feel like you're sinning when you do it, then you shouldn't do it. So follow-up question. What's the difference between I have this violates my conscience and I just don't like it? It's a great question. I How do th- can I discern that? Well, I do think that Christians should be concerned about taking the Lord's name in vain, which is saying, here's what I want in Jesus' name, amen. Right, and, and applying the Lord's name to what he has not said and saying, God told me not to, when in reality you just don't want to. So I think part of it is just the, the honest look in the mirror, probably honest conversation with friends on going like, do I think it'd be sin for me to do it? Meaning like, would I have to repent for it? Did Jesus die for this? Uh, maybe he did, that's a conscience issue versus like, I just don't want to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, be violent my conscience not to drive 45 and a 45 or whatever it is, you know, and, and I think that's just probably not true. And so trying to be honest with what you want versus like what you feel like um, might be sinful for you, even if it's not sinful for you, it might be sinful for me. I think that's a big part of it. So I think in, in those two issues, so obeying God rather than man, which I think does have to do with like real issues of protesting. There's a whole book written, um, <clears throat> called Christian, sorry, Christian and Social Change by Stephen Mott that lists a variety of means and ways of how Christians can engage in civil disobedience, uh, like through protesting, public social um, activism. Like I think most of the best stuff we do is upstream work, not downstream work. You know, you're trying to create good alternatives rather than just trying to protest the existing bad options, things like that. Um, it seems like when you look at some of the better civil disobedience things that really, like I think about the civil rights movement that came out of the church, especially the black church, was not just rooted in kind of my 
personal being afflicted, but in trying to do something for the good of my neighbor yeah. and for the good of others. And so I think that's another angle on it that I know I'm less likely to see through. I'm more likely to go, well, how does this affect me and me only? And, uh, Historically, Christians have practiced more civil disobedience for the sake of your good than for the sake of my good. Like rarely has there been like real movement from the church of standing up for my rights. Usually the church is most successful in their standing up for the rights of others when they're acting as intercessors, yep. not just kind of self-protectionists. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that the other one's not always wrong, but historically we've been most effective when we're acting in love for neighbor, not just kind of insisting on our own rights. Yeah, good. All right, next question. We talk a lot about God the Father and Jesus the Son, but not as much about the Holy Spirit. What exactly is the role of the Spirit? Matthew? Boy, the role of the Spirit. Um, yeah, the, the role of the Spirit is to mediate God's grace and power to us today. So um, we're filled with the Spirit if we're followers of Christ, and um, He convicts and encourages and prompts and um, animates His people. Um, he's kind of like the... The, the, the power of, of God at work in the world, I guess, I'd mm -hmm. say. So we, we do believe that uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally exist in three distinct persons, that they're persons um, and that they're eternal. They don't kind of morph and change from one state to another. Um, and so, yeah, the, the Lord even before he left said, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send a helper mm -hmm. to you. So the Spirit is a helper. He helps us live out the truth of the gospel in our lives. It's very yeah, John personal. 14 and John 16, he's the helper who convicts of sin and leads us to truth. In Romans 8, he's this uh, assurer who testifies with our spirit that we are ch children of God. He provides a great deal of comfort and assurance. Um, I think in 1 Peter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, he's the giver of gifts. So he empowers us to have different abilities to do things for the good of others. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we, we have to walk by the Spirit, it says in Galatians 5, so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit and live to change life. And uh... one, one key one, too, is he's the illuminator, hmm. meaning we can't understand anything of God unless he illuminates and helps us see. Yeah. So he, he helps us understand the Scriptures. He helps us understand the Gospel. Uh, so like any ability to comprehend what the God is saying yeah. is a gift of the Spirit. Hmm. All right, next question. If I want to be developed as a leader in the church... What should I do? Man, great question. I like that. That's a lot of my heart. Um, yeah, what I would say is uh, leaders are recognized more than they are appointed. And this is actually true in all of our lives, right? Like if someone in your life, if your boss has to remind you they're the boss, it's because you already don't really respect them that much as a boss. And so uh, leadership, especially in the church, is more recognized than it is appointed. So, so what I would say is, is someone who wants to be a leader needs to start by being a faithful Christian and a faithful servant. Um, Jesus said, you know, a servant's not above his master. I came to serve, not to be served. Um, we're not to lord power over people. Uh, Matthew 20 says, like, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the world does, is remind you how important they are. But among us, we serve. And so I think if you want to be developed as a leader, you should start by serving, um, by uh, being a blessing. I would say look for the places where uh, there are people who are not, there's needs that, that nobody's meeting and try to meet them. Or find the areas where other leaders are uh, doing stuff, but they don't really enjoy doing it. And you go do it. Um, 
And then I think as you do that, and especially as you kind of talk with other leaders kind of in your life and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to be developed more as a leader, um, make that known. Don't feel bad about that. Don't feel shy about that. It says in First th- uh, Timothy 3 that if anyone desires to be an overseer, that's a noble calling, and so that's a good thing. Um, but also be ready um, to know that it takes a long time because leadership in the church is more about character than it is about competence. And um, you need to be willing to be able to have people sort of poke at you and uh, point stuff out and help with some of the rough edges and just realize it takes time. But I think as you serve and as you, um, you know, just take the lower place, you end up finding that people go, hey, why don't you come up here? Um, so that's some of what I'd say. You guys, anything? Formerly, we have an internship program and uh, not everybody can be an intern, but I do think that <laughs> leadership is overrated in the church and discipleship is underrated. Mm. Like I think, be a good disciple, ask for more responsibility. So rather than saying like, hey, I want to be a leader, saying, hey, I'd like to take more responsibility, yeah. where could I do that? Mm. Uh, because absorbing responsibility and doing excellently is what leadership is. Like I'm leading my sphere. So find a sphere, take, be responsible for it. And that probably starts in kids or students or guest services and take a sphere, do excellently, and then ask for more responsibility. And if you're doing a good job, then you might be told, sure, here's more responsibility. Or they might be told, you're not ready for that, and here's why. And that's being developed as a leader. So focus less on the title leader and more on serving, studying, and responsibility. I think you'll do well. Yeah, I also think about, like, like some of you know Jen Wilkin. We've done some of her Bible studies and things over the years, and she's a phenomenal Bible teacher and a really great leader. And she would say, like, here's how I got developed as a leader. I bought... 40 books, and I read them, and I served in my church, and over time I had opportunities to do stuff. So I do think um, there is a level of taking responsibility for your development and your growth. No one else's job is to develop you. Your job is to get developed. Um, I think that's a difference. All right, next question. Could you further explain the conviction of Redemption Arizona that says chronic seriousness is often a symptom of chronic insecurity? Yeah. I, that sounds like it came out of the type the typing I wrote that, of Seth yeah, Trout. Yeah. So <laughs> go for it, bud. So I wrote that. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's funny. The, that's all the explanation you need. There you go. Yeah. No, so there is this uh, family systems therapist named um, Edwin Friedman who wrote a book about uh, family systems and dynamics, and he's talking about the, the inner workings of people within family environments. And he's a th- therapist like 40 years and a rabbi, and so he's not a Christian. I mean, I don't think he is. He's dead, so anyway. So he, um, he was talking about how in family systems, when people feel insecure, they tend to kind of clam up and get really serious because they perceive everything as a threat. And when you're very serious, you see everything as a threat. And when you see everything as a threat, um, then you have to you're right, insecure. And whereas the ability to be lighthearted, to crack jokes, to um, enjoy yourself means that you're not feeling threatened all the time. And if you're feeling threatened all the time, it's hard to make jokes. I mean, some people, when they're feeling insecure, they just can't stop making jokes. Uh, but sometimes when people are just very like serious, sober, don't smile people, um, they wouldn't say they feel threatened all the time. But a lot of times what's going on deep down is they're feeling insecure, threatened by all things that are around them and uh, addressing that root. So that's why we say we, we take God seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. That's like the underlying... Yeah, that's actually the conviction. Yeah, the conviction we take is, God seriously, yeah. but not ourselves. I think that sentence helps explain it. Yeah. The, yeah. So what about... So I'm just... So personally, Seth, yeah. I think a lot of people would go, Seth seems really serious. 
Yeah. And yet, I think, I think people would also go like, he doesn't seem very insecure. He seems pretty confident. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Until now. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Yeah. My sense is you remembered that because you thought. Yeah, I felt addressed I don't want to be too serious. I felt addressed by it. Part of it, I do think that one of the things that I don't like about me is I feel like from the stage, I tend to be, I feel more serious to people than I feel like I am off the stage. Hmm. Like I think people who know me better don't see me as, as serious as I come across all the time on stage. Yeah. And so I feel like part of my growth and development is being more myself hmm. on the stage and allowing that side of me to come out more. And so I do think that there was a season in my life where I did feel threatened by things. And I did feel like when you're on a stage, you're performing. And if you perform poorly, then people will leave or people will be upset. And so you can't, you know, you're going to make a joke and someone's going to get offended and you're going to get canceled and they're going to leave and blah, blah, blah. And, and the more I get comfortable in my skin and make peace with disappointing people and make peace with some, not everyone liking you, the more I feel like you let more of your personality out. And yeah. so I think that's part of my own development and growth in that. And the reason that I tend to remember things perfectly whenever they zing me, hmm. right? And if they don't really hit me, then I, they kind of in one ear out the other. So like this thing, when I read it, it was like, oh, zing. You got me. Yeah. So yeah, we um, want to embody a big enough vision of God that this whole thing doesn't fall apart if one of us <laughs> makes a mistake, right? We believe God is sovereign and he's good and he loves us and we have a responsibility to play, but it's not like Every, uh, every decision is, you know, everything hangs in the balance. So, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot about uh, my college baseball coach said, we had baseball before you were here, and we have baseball when you leave. You're not that big a deal. <laughs> and I sort of feel like we all just need a little dose of that. Like, yeah. we're not that big a deal. Relax. God's important. God's big. We're not. It's just this reality that the gospel is sure. not at risk. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail, period. Right. And it's not, it won't prevail if Luke does a good sermon this week. It's not, it won't prevail right. if Matthew leads good songs this week. It's not, it won't prevail if hmm. ask anything goes off without a hitch. It's, uh, the gospel will prevail against the gates of hell, period, the end. And so trying to rightly measure how much my input really matters to the sovereign God's universe. Yeah. And when I hold it like that, I can uh, be a little less intense about stuff. Yeah. All right. Good question. Next one. <clears throat> What are your thoughts on prepping and storing up ammo in the event of political societal unrest that, need, that leads to a need to defend yourself? My answer is I hope some of you are because I'm coming over <laughs> if that happens. But I'm, I'm not a gun owner, so uh, you guys maybe I was going to say it's way this. more fun to shoot your ammo than to store it. So that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the approach I take. Um, Matthew's the one with the boots on, so let's ask him. Yeah, right? <laughs> I do probably have more guns than both of you guys. Uh, I think that... I don't know. Flex your arms, Seth. <laughs> okay. I lose. All right. Fair enough. I, I, I feel like um, this, is, this is tricky. Like, what you're putting your faith in, like, what you're trusting in, again, is, like, a huge question in this. So you got the love your neighbor question, and you've got the who am I trusting in question. Um, I think in the event of real political and social unrest, like if things got that bad that ammunition is the answer, like do you do you really think like another box of nine millimeter is gonna like help that much? I mean, it's gonna be it would be pretty it'd be pretty bad. So um, 
it, it might be a decent strategy, but it feels like there's a lot more that I'd do first if I felt like it was going in this direction <clears throat> than start banking ammo. Like in light of eternity, there'd probably be a lot more I'd put my energy into because this, this life, like this is temporal. We're all going to die, Christians, non-Christians. Yeah. Um, Prepping emotionally and spiritually feels more obviously vital and disobedient if you don't do it. Like, yeah. are we prepared to like trust Jesus in crisis? That feels like a question that feels like a bigger deal. Like, I think that like, this is, like, I don't think that's necessarily a waste of time, but I feel like defending yourself against a home invasion is probably more reality than defending yourself against like the government who has a tank. You know, like I, I just don't see that really playing out well for you. But like preparing for your, your kids to encounter the world is like even more of a threat than probably even a home invasion. Exactly. So yeah. like what sort of presence are you cultivating in your home relationally? What sort of spiritual leadership are you providing? I, those things feel like way higher up on the priority scale to me. And what will kill your family most <laughs> likely will be idolatry, sex, money, power, yeah. and secularism not necessarily um, some enemies in the government. And I just think that one of those things are certain and actual real threats, and one of those things are possible threats. And I think best time is, you're best preparing for r real certain threats than for possible threats. Though being as prepared as possible is not a problem. And it's questions like that that make me glad we do this. I, I would never think of that question, but that's a great question. So here we go, next question. What aspect of your role is most misunderstood? The question is by who? Because when I talk to people who are new to church, they like in kind of all, some, some of you are probably new to church and all you have experience is the Sunday thing. And it's like, what do you do all week? Is this a one day week job? Because that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> um, uh, but for people who are like the more connected and involved people are in terms of caring responsibility or serving, like I feel pretty understood hmm. by like our covenant members, core people who really get it. I don't kind of walk around feeling misunderstood. Um, but I do think as people are newer to the church and they're like, what exactly happens Monday through Saturday? Like that's kind of difficult. Um, trying to help them understand what, what goes on and evaluate those things. I'm sure that, I mean, we got a question about your role. So you probably have to feel like your role is a little more misunderstood. Yeah, I feel like for me, and again, you're right. It does depend who's asking or whatever. But for me, it's, um, I think people think I know everything that's going on in the church. And I think they think I like everything that's going on in the church. Like everything that's happening is happening the way I would want it to happen. And neither of those are necessarily true. Uh, there's tons I don't know. We have a large church. There's lots of different leaders. Um, we could have a church where I knew everything. I don't think it'd be a very healthy church. Uh, we could have a church where everything was done the way I like it. I don't think that would be very healthy. So the decisions to try to be a healthier church means that I don't always get my way and I don't always have my preferences take place. Um, and so that's something I think, I think people go, hey, how come you guys are blah, 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 I don't even know what you're talking about. So <clears throat> I think that's misunderstood. And then I think any of you who are in a leadership role, you just know sort of, uh, you know, Seth has a saying, he reminds me sometimes, you know, three feet of wood is the distance between that side of the desk and this side of the desk. And when you're in the leadership role, especially those of you who lead and you've had to make decisions over these last two years and there aren't good decisions, there's just less bad decisions, like that's, that's a tough deal. I've I found though through that, most people have been pretty gracious. Uh, I don't know, most understood for my role. I think most people only see you as a music guy 
and they would okay. not know or understand all the shepherding of people and care for people and the logistical stuff and the I mean you're this weird mix of like there's an artistic side, there's a logistic financial side, and there's a huge like just pastor side. Like you're the one, you know, Matthew, we do uh, a meeting a couple times a month with our pastors, and it's all just to pastor the pastors. And he comes up with the questions, and he leads that time. And so I think there's just a lot there that, so I'll speak for you. Thanks. <clears throat> all right, next question. <laughs> what can we look forward to heaven being like? Oh, yeah. So the, oh. Go for it. I mean, I love this question. Oceanside? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> we, my family loves to go to Oceanside. I, it'll be a lot like the best things you enjoy now on earth. Heaven comes down to earth in the end, by the way. The Lord reigns with us. He resurrects the dead. We live in a, in a renewed physical creation, yet without sin. So all the decay and brokenness, my orange trees that are dying won't be dying because I unintentionally poisoned them. Um, <laughs> Things like that, right? So all the great food and um, community and, and family and uh, just all the, the beauty and blessing of God's creation renewed without sin. There's a lot we can look forward to. Anytime you see brokenness in the world, um, you can allow that to point you to the hope mm. of a renewed creation. When Jesus is dying on the cross and he turns to the person and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. The word paradise is the same word used for the word Eden in Genesis 1. And so today you'll be with me in Eden. And so the best picture we have of heaven is Genesis 1 and 2. And it'll be, instead of a garden, it'll be a city because it'll be developed that Adam and Eve were called to subdue and have dominion to develop it. So it'll be Eden developed minus any sin and brokenness. And so there is like this, uh, it's Eden, but it's a city yeah. is the shorthand way of saying that. Awesome. All right, maybe a couple more. Uh, if we can go quickly, we'll see. Next one. <clears throat> what does Judgment Day look like for Christians when they stand before God and give an account for their life? So a couple passages come to mind here for me. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 14. Is it? It talks about the Bema seat, judgment. Mercy seat, yeah. The mercy seat. Uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3. talks about we're all building on a foundation that will someday be revealed either as gold and silver, wooden hay and straw. So there is a kind of Judgment Day coming for believers. A judgment Day for believers will not look like we're being uh, judged on heaven or hell. It'll be, what did you do with what I gave you? And how did you make use of what I've given you? Like, I think it's more about the talents, you know, like the, that parable of, because uh, we'll be assigned jobs and roles in, in the new heavens and new earth. And I think part of that will be playing out. I do think we'll, it's called the mercy seat. And so we'll, we'll be standing before God in judgment covered in the blood of the lamb. So I think a lot of us are afraid of that as like a shameful experience that everything we've ever done will be seen in laid account. Mm. But I think we'll experience the heart of the Father who's broken for us and who loves us and cares for us and is happy we're here. Mm. And he's saying, like, let's look at what you did in the next phase because this part of our life is the shortest part of our life on the other side of the judgment seat. It's the longest part of our life. And so I think there will be an assignment and transition even while we're there. I think of it as, like, bringing um, your hard work to the one that will delight in it and presenting it. I got to, uh, the opportunity, my neighbor helped me make something for my wife for Christmas. It was like a kind of a wood cutting board thing, kind of artistic. It was fun to do. And I was so excited 
to give it to her on Christmas Day. And that's kind of like the judgment day moment. It's not like a fear of, did I do enough? It's like, I can't wait to, to give you what I, what I created and experience your joy and delight in it. I, I think of that much more as yeah. it relates to this than maybe the, gosh, did I squander what was given or something like that. Mm. Mm. So it's more like Christmas Day, but with like a four-year-old who tells you the truth. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> How was Christmas for you, Seth? Oh, I <laughs> yeah. think we know. All right, uh, last question. Let's do one more. After the Bible, what one book would you recommend for personal Christian growth? Are you calling on me? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd say right now, I'll make you guys squirm more. Uh, <clears throat> Gentle and Lowly by oh, Dane Orland is what Matthew was going to say. Uh, it's a book that, that came out in the last few years, and it's just really, really, really great. I think the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and it's really, really good. Hmm. That's what you're going to say? Yeah, I mean, that's been one that's been really yeah. impactful lately. I don't know. Let me keep thinking. You go ahead. I'd probably say Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. And then I'll give one more since you, uh, since you passed. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a book by uh, Randy Alcorn called Safely Home. I probably recommend it to more people than anything else. It's a fiction book, and I put off reading it for years because I didn't have time to read fiction. And then I read it, and I grew more from it than all the Christian books I'd read the last 10 years before that. Uh, I think it just if you want an imagination for the gospel around the world and for the glory of Christ, it's just really great. So Safely Home. This is a bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I feel like there's been so many different stages in my life where I've needed different things. Mm. I'm in a season right now where I, I need uh, embodied story rather than just doctrinal directives. Mm. And so any, honestly, any good story mm. is just really, I've found nourishing to my soul lately. Cool. So. I know that's not an answer. But. No, that's great. Uh, so thank you guys. Thanks for your questions. Uh, we really appreciate it. Seth, will you close us in prayer? I will, yeah. Father, thanks for the time this morning. I pray that your spirit will uh, translate our words to the hearts of folks who are listening. I pray that um, as folks have uh, burning disagreements or stressors or anxieties that were created by this, that you'd give them the energy and the ability to follow up, send an email or see us afterwards that we can really maintain this conversation and keep it going. God, I pray that you would protect us in this next year, that we would be signs and agents of your kingdom in a faithful way. Amen. Amen.